All right, I think uh, we're ready to go. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, great. Uh, my name is Ian Mitra. I'm the editor of the Texas Tribune, and I'd like to uh, welcome you all to the seventh annual Tribune Festival. This is the Texas and the Refugee Crisis panel. Uh, what I'd like to do is start off by introducing our uh, great panel here, and, uh, and then we'll open it up. Uh, we're going to do 40, 45 minutes of uh, panel discussion, and then we're going to have the uh, last uh, 15, 20 minutes uh, for Q&A. So if you have questions, we'll try to get to them. I'll try to give you a heads up when we're getting close uh, to getting questions, so if you want to line up at the mic, you can do that. Uh, I'll just do the introductions, and then we'll uh, have one or two little more uh, instructions, and we'll get going. Uh, so I'd like to start off at the end here with Mr. Ali Nurani. He's the executive director of the DC-based National Immigration Forum, an advocate, advocacy organization promoting the value of immigrants and immigration. Before joining the forum, Ali was a, an executive director of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition, Coalition, and he has served in leadership roles within public health and in environmental organizations. Next we have Jackson County Sheriff Andy Lauterbach, who's serving his third term in the county located on the Gulf Coast. As president of the Sheriff's Association of Texas, he has been a leader on a statewide level and has regularly spoken to the Texas legislature about immigration and border security issues. He also serves on the National Sheriff's Association Governmental Affairs Committee. Next we have Mr. Mustafa Tumiz, who is the managing director of the Houston-based Outreach Strategist, a global communications firm and, and public affairs firm. Previously, he served as a consultant to the Department of Homeland Security and as a campaign consultant in a previous life, he has led winning Democratic campaigns for big city mayors and congressional candidates. Next is Joanne Lyon. She's the ambassador of the Wesleyan Church. She has participated in several interfaith conferences on the refugee crisis and has advised multiple presidents on humanitarian issues. Additionally, she has served as founder and CEO of World Hope International, a faith-based international relief organization. And she has also served on multiple boards, including the Council on Faith of the World Economic Forum. And just to my left here is Jessica Vaughn. She's the Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies, a DC-based research institute that examines the impact of immigration on American society. Her area of expertise is immigration policy and operations, covering topics like visa programs, immigration benefits, and immigration law enforcement. Uh, before joining the center in 1992, she was a Foreign Service Officer with the State Department, where she served in Belgium and Trinidad and Tobago. So uh, if I could ask you all to please silence your phones if you are tweeting, feel please, please tweet. The hashtag is TribFest17. And uh, I guess we'll get started. So we were all seriously, just like furiously looking through our phones to see what the latest update is because it feels like the news is traveling, just changing by the minute. And so, you know, we have, uh, <coughs> at the end of this weekend is uh, kind of the, the end of the review period for the travel ban. Uh, as, uh, as you may know, uh, the Trump's travel ban in March was uh, was the subject of court. You know, it was the modified uh, order was taken to court, uh, and now it's being as it's being weighed by the Supreme Court, which is supposed to take arguments October 10th, I believe. And now we're hearing about a new policy that he's potentially looking at uh, ahead of that as this review period is ending um, this weekend. So, starting there, I think the main topic of issue here is security. That's the question. I'll start with you, Mr. Narani. If you could talk about just where you think where the travel ban stands now, and just the security debate and where you, where you see it going from here. Well, sure. I mean, first of all, I really want to thank the, the Tri Texas Tribune for the great panel, the great opportunity to be here, and thank you, everybody, for uh, joining us this afternoon. So I think with the travel ban, um, you know, I think that what President Trump and the administration did right out of the gates uh, has raised serious constitutional questions. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this place. Um, I think that as a candidate, uh, um, candidate Trump uh, really established 
uh, an intent to really focus on Muslim-majority countries. Um, and unfortunately, he followed through quite quickly when he came into office to establish this executive order. I think that the courts have uh, asked the right questions constitutionally and we're going through the process. The news that's broke on Friday about a potentially a new executive order, there are a very limited number of details about that order at this point. Um, and so I'm gonna withhold judgment on something that I haven't seen. But we said this in January and I say this today, is that it is within the right, if not the responsibility of the administration to make sure that anybody coming to the United States is properly and appropriately vetted. Uh, and then when we take a step back and you actually look at refugees who have come to the U.S., when you look at the 10 cities that have received the most refugees relative to their size between 2005 and 2016, nine out of those 10 cities have actually become safer over time. And the 10th city uh, was ravaged by a terrible, the awful opioid epidemic that is coming, uh, crashing across the country. So I think we have to balance our, our very legitimate national security needs against our very, very sacred uh, United States Constitution. Ms. Vaughn, you've studied this issue a lot and written about it. Uh, talk about the security uh, concerns from your standpoint about why you think uh, there needs to be more uh, done on this. Uh, sure, and again, thanks. Uh, glad to see you all here. Um, of course, there are some legitimate security concerns because there have been a number, <laughs> really dozens of people who were admitted as refugees from war-torn parts of the world who have arrived, taken advantage of our refugee program to be here and be in a position to carry on attacks against Americans, to raise money for terrorist organizations, and other types of activity that we can't tolerate here that puts us at risk. And, and so the problem is that we do not have adequate vetting systems in place at the moment to make sure that folks that we are admitting uh, from certain parts of the world are, are going to, uh, are who they say they are, for one thing, and um, are actually persecuted and qualify as refugees and are safe for us to admit. Um, the Trump administration has used these last few months um, to improve the vetting system, and, and my understanding of what is going to be announced soon is uh, that, the, uh, that there are going to be probably about nine countries from, whom, from, wh from which uh, places certain types of travelers are not going to necessarily be able to come here, that, that it will be a much more narrowly focused um, ban on travel. There will be more exceptions available, um, but it's going to be up to other countries to work with us to share the information, to give our government officials the information they need before we will necessarily <coughs> allow people to come from those places or allow certain groups to come from those places. So that's the issue. I mean, we know there have been dozens of people who arrived as refugees who've been convicted of terror offenses since 9-11. There have been some very specific examples of individuals admitted as refugees uh, who have been associated with terror acts overseas or who have uh, committed terrorist acts here. That's what the concern is. Obviously, this is just a tiny percentage of, of the uh, tens of thousands of people who are admitted as refugees every year. But it's one, you know, we need, we, in order for the public and, and 
for our government, frankly, our, our security uh, professionals to have confidence uh, we need time to improve those vetting systems. Um, but we're getting there. So Mr. Tamiz, uh, you know, Ms. Vaughn talked about the vetting process. From your perspective, uh, how do you see the vetting process working? Is it something that's in need of great overhaul, or how do you see? I, I work for the Bush administration in, in, from 2005 to 2008 as a consultant for the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and I think if you talk to national security experts, um, they will somewhat unanimously say that the threat in the United States when it comes to terrorism is homegrown terrorism. It's people that radicalize, that live here. It's not the threat isn't coming from overseas, but people that live here. Um, and that that threat is growing by the minute, meaning that what ISIS is able to do is recruit people online. And so when we look at issues like this and have sometimes like a broad statement that you know, we're worried about people coming from overseas, coming into the United States, even though it's a small percentage or a tiny percentage. Well, that's, that's somewhat like a kind of a broad statement that's not backed up by very specific things. Um, and it takes us away from our, what our real focus should be. Let me give you an example. There's a bigger threat of somebody carrying a British passport that really doesn't even need a visa or a French passport that they don't even need a visa to come into the United States and correct a terrorist attack. Not just, not just for any other reason, but they also understand, they speak the language, they can move around our country a lot more easily, they have a lot more knowledge. Um, so while we're all debating about small group of refugees that we struggle to find who in the, amongst the refugee population that has even committed a terrorist attack within the border of the United States, that's very hard to even figure out a name of a person that's been convicted of committing a terrorist attack that came in as a refugee, and we focus so much of our time, effort, our media attention on that, that we take our eye off the ball of the real threat. So there's a double whammy here. One, it takes us away from what the real security threats are, and two, it marginalizes other people, and it creates an environment in which that you can you know, marginalize people in a way that they become victims of being recruited because it's an us versus them mentality. Sheriff Lauterbach, you come, uh, you know, you're sheriff of Jackson County. You're looking at this from a, from a more of a local on the ground point of view. Uh, kind of what's your take on the, in, in terms of the big, bigger debate on security and vetting? Thanks, Ian. Uh, let me give you a law enforcement perspective on this. We have to be able to do our job. And, and the, the end result of the valid threats that are being talked about here, on the, to the left and to the right of me, these are all valid threats that are going to come to the forefront of law enforcement. If we're not able to properly vet, if we're not able to put the type of, of, of uh, assets and resources to make sure that who's coming into our country is properly vetted and investigated, then those issues are going to come back to affect all Americans at some point in time. And so I think that the, the message here from law enforcement has to remain that, look, let's not get in a hurry. Let's, let's utilize our assets, put our resources to work here. Let's make sure that all of us are doing the very best job we can to make sure our citizens are protected. That's what we have to do, because all of these threats that we have uh, from multi-areas are, are, are going to impact us at some point or another, just like they're impacting other countries today. So, so I'll, I'll pose this to the whole panel before I want to ask uh, Dr. Lyon a little bit more about her work. But uh, 
is there something very obvious in terms of the security and the vetting process that needs to be addressed? Is there something specific that we need to pinpoint here? Because we're talking pretty generally just about the idea of security and vetting. But what exactly do we need to be talking about in terms of what, what gaps there are in the process? Uh, and that's for anyone. As someone who's actually had to try to vet people for approval for entry to the United States, I can tell you that there, there are some weaknesses. And with respect to certain groups of refugees, um, from certain parts of the world, notably Syria, but also Somalia and some Iraq and some other places. Um, the biggest issue is uh, the credibility of the applicant and making sure that they are who they say they are. They are. Um, and when there is a government in collapse that doesn't have control over its own identity documents, that becomes almost impossible, as is the case with Syria. Even um, in Iraq, I mean, there was a recent case of uh, a family that was admitted as refugees that went, went through our process um, that was admitted to the United States, but then later determined through some fingerprint matches um, that they were associated with terror events back in Iraq, and yet they made it through the screening process. The, um, the process didn't detect that they had changed their names at some point in the application process and uh, we're able to get here under a new identity. So that's really the issue is identification. And you know, when there's, as I think uh, former FBI director Jim Comey was famous for saying is, it, you know, we can check databases all we want all day long, but if there's nothing in those databases to check against, there's no point, it doesn't help. So. Well, and, and Dr. Lyons is gonna probably speak into this as well, but. In essence, just so that we have, we're clear on this, when people think of refugees, the visual is people walking across the border with all their belongings. That's not how the people get here, right? Mm -hmm. right? So uh, people get here, it takes almost two years uh, to get through a vetting process. You're, you're usually at a third-party country. Um, half of the refugees are women and, and, and children. Um, 17 different agencies have your file. Um, they, week, they meet on a weekly basis. You go through biometrics. You go through a series of interviews. Um, it is one of the most stringent processes to get through to come into the United States. So if you are a would-be terrorist, uh, there's a lot easier ways to come into the United States, a lot easier ways to create a terrorist threat to Western civilization than come in as a refugee because that is probably the hardest way to commit a terrorist attack. Mr. Ron, you want to say something? Well, I'll ju I just wanted to speak regarding that, but I'm going to speak from the perspective of the faith community. And one of the things that uh, we've, the faith community has been, ex been working with refugees and being sponsored, you have to, refugees have to have a sponsor. And so probably for the last 100 years, I think Catholic Charities maybe started maybe close to 100 years ago, and the World Relief started 70 years ago. And so uh, that's a whole piece that never gets factored into this refugee business. Um, and so when the faith community enters into this, they not only enter into it legally and making sure everything's in that way, but there's a relationship, relationships are developed. Um, and uh, so, uh, in fact, I was just with, uh, I was in D.C. not long ago, and I was with some pastors, and I was amazed at one young pastor who told me that he had, this is down in North Carolina, 13 families from his congregation who had sold their homes in the suburbs and moved in with the refugees. 
uh, just so they could keep these relationships built. And so there could be this kind of work and, and help refugees integrate into the larger society. And I think that's been one of the differences that's happened, and I believe the faith community has been a strong part in this, that uh, our refugees have integrated into society and assimilated as opposed to ghettoized in, um, in Europe. Uh, and I think that the faith community has a strong part in playing that, in that happening. I want to uh, switch a little bit to another uh, issue that gets brought up when it talks about refugee resettlement. That's the issue of cost. Uh, a, a lot, there have been some concerns raised about, you know, that it, about the costs when it comes to resettling refugees. Um, you know, as there was a report in the New York Times this week uh, about related to the cost, uh, there was some uh, uh, argument about to whether the you know whether the cost of uh, bringing in refugees, resettling them, is you know how much how expensive, you know, how much it costs versus how much they bring in. Uh, the Times report said that uh, uh, there was actually in trying to factor in uh, you know what uh, refugees bring in when they actually get jobs and pay taxes and stuff. They actually bring a net benefit of what was it sixty three billion over ten years, um, which is you know obviously that was a HHS uh, federal report. But uh, you know the, the the White House said there were some issues with that report. That's why it didn't come out the way you know that way when it, the final report came out. Let's talk about cost. Uh, you know, from your perspectives, and, I, and I'll open this up to the panel. Uh, you know, you know, what are the cost implications that we're talking about with this program? What's not being discussed? Uh, what's being uh, just vague, you know, overseen when we when we talk about the cost of, of these efforts? I think what's not being talked about actually is the benefit of immigrants, uh, or immigrants and refugees. I think that because when somebody is you know com is coming as a refugee, they're resettled often in parts of the country that are are on the cusp of great growth. They're not being resettled in you know your big cities or your big communities that are already experiencing. Uh, um, you know, growth and vitality. So in my experience, and uh, in our experience at the National Immigration Forum, in working with communities in the Southeast and the Midwest uh, and in the Mountain West, we've seen refugees be just incredible benefits to communities. So for example, in Idaho. Um, Idaho is, you know, one of the most conservative states in the country. Uh, it is, you know, it's a, in southern Idaho, their unemployment rate is anywhere between, you know, three and four percent. It has the third highest, da third largest dairy industry in the nation. It's a dairy industry that is increasingly driven by a mix of Hispanic workers and refugees. Um, and you know, at the beginning of the year when, for example, the travel ban was issued, one of the biggest uh, opponents to that executive order wasn't the refugee community or the immigrant community in uh, the state of Idaho. It was actually the dairy owners because they saw this community not as you know, just a cog in the wheel. They saw them as taxpayers, contributors to their towns, and really an extension of their family and their community. So I think that's the story that's not being told, um, because I, I think like your, your, your mainstream media, no offense. Um, <laughs> Who's he talking about? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, focuses on the big city, the big city uh, uh, story. I mean, the small city, small town story is that's the place where this stuff is really playing out in a, in a very powerful and, and authentic way. Another piece I would like to say on that is, again, the faith community. No one yet has quantified all the dollars that have been put in over the years uh, by the faith community, that when the government finishes, the faith community steps in and continues to work with people. And there, there are dollars that are there. I was just speaking about this in the State Department long, not long ago, and we decided someone, someone, some researcher out there, you need to do that research so we'll really know how many uh, billions of dollars the faith community has put in in helping uh, refugees stabilize in this country. Sheriff. Well, if we can 
the increased benefits to the, to the refugees? Mm -hmm. What if we can uh, also increase our security? Mm -hmm. um, what if we think about settling them closer to their home country? Well, I mean, I think, that, for example, a lot of this idea of kind of uh, regional processing centers uh, came up when the uh, unaccompanied minor crisis happened in 2014, so that you know, ch women and children, instead of having to kind of put their hands in the lives of smugglers, were able to, you know, in essence, resettle in a, a community or a city or, I'm sorry, a country nearby. You know, when you look at the number of refugees that actually have gone from you know, Syria or Iraq and have settled in you know, Palestine or Jordan, I mean, that's an incredible, I mean, there are huge numbers of people being resettled in camps. Um, I mean, I just think this is a, you know, a big question for us, not just as a nation, but as a globe. I mean, right now there are 65 million people who have been forcibly displaced from their homes because of war, because of you know, political catastrophe. I'm sh none of them want to leave. None of them want to come to the US. In fact, uh, Stephen Bauman, who ran World Relief, told me that any time he saw a refugee family who was being in the middle of the process, you know what? They had, their, they had their keys, their house keys in their pocket, because they thought they were going to go home. Ms. Wong. Yeah, I, I was going to say, um, I mean, of course there is a cost to resettling refugees. Um, we've calculated that it's about 65000 at the federal level per refugee for the first five years, $65,000. And we expect that there is going to be a cost, because of course these are destitute individuals who've gone through horrific trauma and need our support. And um, you know, that's what our, our refugee program is, you know, recognizes that. And, and that's why they become uh, eligible for benefits. That's why they're giving house, housing assistance, language assistance, job training, all sorts of services. It's because this is a needy group of people. And, and that's why we're bringing them here. Um, I think the issue for me is, I mean, we know there's going to be an upfront cost. What becomes a dilemma is what is the best use of our resources as a country? And does it, is it better to help a few people by bringing them here and taking on this cost, which we as a nation you know, have done for many years, or would it, wouldn't it be better to think in terms of using at least some of those resources that currently go for resettlement, which is an expensive um, process, to helping people nearer to where they are, to supporting international efforts closer to um, the, the places where people are from? And, and we calculated that, that we could help 12 times as many people by supporting those international efforts um, than by bringing people here. And, and you know, that, to me, is a very powerful um, incentive to put our resources toward uh, these international efforts. And then the issue of security for our country becomes moot. Uh, and and we're, just, we're helping more people nearer to where they are, which is wh what they want, puts them in a better position to go home, than always defaulting to this idea of resettlement. I think there are always going to be certain populations who have to be resettled because there is no other option. But um, I, I do think that we should be thinking of a, uh, a new paradigm for refugee resettlement globally um, that focuses on giving people the opportunity to return home, if, which is what they want. And, and, and picking up on that, most refugees, if you ask them, they rather stay with their home. 
So these are people that are not looking to come to the United States because they just want to come and they want a better life and they want to come. They're fleeing something. So getting back to Sheriff's point of view, um, a lot of those refugees, like we just took Iraq off that list, is because they were translators from American soldiers. These people were putting their life on the line to protect and work with our soldiers on the ground. So if you ask our soldiers, what should we do with somebody who saved your life, who put themselves in harm's way between you and them, do you want them back in the United States safe? Do you want their kids to be safe? Our soldiers will tell you that, yeah, I want that person back in the United States safe. So that's a group of refugees, right? There's other groups of refugees that are, that are fleeing immense amount of persecution for all sorts of reasons, and that's why they're coming here. So this notion that Hey, let's just spend a little bit, you know, let's spend a little bit less, and let's just let them be over there. And that's just most of. That's not what's going on for the most part. To get to the United States of America as a refugee is a very difficult task. Very few people actually make it, and they get vetted with a lot of scrutiny to get here, and it's a small percentage of people. So when we paint these broad brushes that, hey, let's just spend, you know, it's more effective just to leave them there, for the most part, we do leave them there, to be honest with you. I, I want to put a, uh, you know, an example here to kind of you know, build on this uh, discussion, and that's you know, what's going on with tens of thousands of Rohingya Muslims uh, going, uh, you know, being, being displaced from their homes. Um, for the panel, just kind of, how do we even, what's our role here? What can we do to uh, you know, address this? You know, it's just a, gro a growing, growing crisis. We've taken in about 20,000 uh, Rohingya um, refugees in the last couple of years. I think that maybe is a five-year total. Um, so you know, they definitely have been a part of our refugee resettlement program for a number of years now, in pretty significant numbers. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a crisis that we can solve on our own, though. And again, I, I think we need to discuss, is it better to pick a lucky few and have them resettled here? Or would it be better to work with international efforts and help more people with those same resources? I mean, uh, yeah, go ahead. Great. Uh, so I want to, we've talked about, about, a lot about federal policy and um, the federal debate. I want to talk about uh, communities a little bit uh, and the impact on communities and how communities are involved in these efforts. And Dr. Lyon, I'd like to start with you, just from your perspective in terms of, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the guidance that communities get and uh, kind of the role in communities and how they're part of this and how you see their role being in, in, in these resettlement efforts. Uh, the faith community here yeah. in the states you're talking about. Yeah, yes. starting there. Yeah, please. Yes. Well, I think that it's very, I mean, everyone wants to live in community. And primarily, many of the refugees, that's the core of who, of their life, is, is even a tighter community than our individualistic uh, US style. And so it's very important that community be built. Uh, and so the faith community believes that and works very hard in uh, helping those communities to, to bond uh, and to, to be strengthened. Um, I mean, it's, it, we don't begin to know all that, uh, that each individual does and families do. Those aren't quantified. 
uh, or labeled. Uh, and it, I, I, just must, I just want to say, though, also this is done out of, the faith, out of the heart of the faith community and the belief system that we have uh, in, in the scriptures, both in the Hebrew scriptures and in uh, the New Testament. We're told to uh, care for the alien. I kind of, there's a four things, the widow, the poor, the, the uh, orphan, and the alien. Uh, and it even starts in, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures of the stories that the, peop- the farmers would all leave the corners of, uh, for the grain there for the aliens to get. And, um, uh, and, and, it, and that also says that it was about the aliens working for this too. It was not just a free ride. Uh, so it was working there. And so it comes out of that, I guess I would say it comes out of caring for the least of these uh, of the teachings of Jesus. So more, more of that is not just legally we're trying to do this and this and this, but it's living out our faith and how that impacts other people. Uh, Ms. Vaughn, do you, do you see from your perspective, uh, you know, our, our cities and counties, uh, are, they, are they getting enough guidance? Are they, are they involved, as involved in the process, or is there more that can be done on that front? There's a lot more that can be done on that front. Um, one of the reasons that the refugee resettlement process has become so controversial is, is not just because of security and cost issues, but because uh, the reality is, is that the communities that receive refugees for resettlement do not have much of a say in that and are, are in fact not consulted to any great extent and that there's very little transparency provided uh, as to how many are coming, um, what their expected needs are going to be, what is expected of the local government, uh, the school system, the public health system, uh, and other aspects of government that are greatly affected when a population of refugees is resettled there. And that's why we have a number of mayors uh, around the country, and in some cases state governments, that have tried to push back a little bit on uh, the State Department and other agencies involved in the federal government to say, look, you know, we deserve a, a place at the table also. This so-called consultative process is really um, just a token effort. In fact, decisions on resettlement are made by the group of resettlement contractors who may be doing this, you know, um, uh, for the best of reasons, but also because they get paid quite a lot of money by the federal government to resettle refugees. And, um, you know, so they are often just placing warm bodies where they can find a place for them and are not held accountable in any way as to the success of the resettlement, the success for the refugees and in helping them become self-sufficient. And that's the issue that a lot of local governments have. And refugees are not settled in the most prosperous areas of the country. They're settled in places where the housing costs are affordable. These also happen to be communities where uh, a large share of the population also needs support from its government and and sometimes um, feels a fiscal pinch um, when the, 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 um, the needs cannot be met through the tax base. So it, that's the big issue, is a lack of consultation and a lack of a say in the number and expectations for resettlement. Mr. Tamiz, I think you... Let me just rephrase it in a different way. These, these contractors that are paid very large money are interfaith ministries, uh, Catholic charities. These are nonprofit organizations. 
that have come together basically to do public good. Um, those are the highly paid professionals in this. Um, and you know, when we resettle them in areas that are very poverty-stricken areas, refugees for the most part, um, in some way serve as economic revitalization in many parts. I come from Houston, Texas, one of the most diverse cities in the nation. Uh, our mayor will tell you that he's welcoming to refugees. Um, we probably, Harris County, uh, probably takes in more refugees than any other region in the United States, and we've benefited from that, both economically and in our diversity. Um, so to, to some people, it would, again, be consistent that it would sound like this is a drain on our economy, this is a drain on our system, this is changing the, our country for the worst, but if you take the same stats and you pair them up and you try to look at the empirical data, it shows the complete opposite. Now, some people may not want to believe the data, but it, it is what it is, and, and like most things in life, we're starting to look at everything from a very partisan lens rather than trying to look at the actual science and the actual data. Uh, I want to talk about the agencies that you, since you mentioned, both mentioned them. Uh, are they getting enough guidance uh, through, through the pro current program as it is? Uh, Dr. Lyon, maybe I'll start with you. Uh, well, yes, I, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with all the agencies, but I'm, I'm, I'm familiar particularly with the faith community agencies, and I didn't know we made that much money, so I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, uh, yes, they are, they're, they're, and they're, there's constant learning, constant working at this, uh, and uh, there's, I think there's a great deal of uh, connection and working, and then just and just on interpersonal kinds of things that, that people think. But I just want to mention something along this line. Uh, not long ago, I was in uh, at a meeting, and this, this young Syrian woman, young woman, I think she was probably getting ready to go to college, but played the violin beautifully. And she played, and she, she was a, someone had arranged for her to take some lessons and whatever. And in that meeting, she played the violin in a marvelous way. Her fa she got out, but her family did not. And uh, now, there she is. Uh, and her family now cannot get out. So that's a bit of the on-the-ground issues that we're dealing with as well in just plain human life uh, in, in the issues that we're dealing with today. You know, I'll bring up another example. And, you know, we've started to do some more and more work with uh, law enforcement. I've developed a, a, I just have come to really, really respect the, the service and the, the sacrifice that law enforcement officials make every day. And, Sheriff, I really want to... Thank you and your deputies for everything that you do in, in Texas. Thank you, sir. Um, and I was in uh, Salt Lake um, earlier this year. I was sitting down with uh, Chief Brown, who runs the Salt Lake City Police Department. And you know, Salt Lake is a city that has welcomed quite a number of refugees. In fact, I was also there uh, for General Conference, which is um, the semi-annual gathering of the Mormon Church. And one of the sermons that afternoon was about refugee resettlement. Uh, and it was just you know, 21,000 people in the auditorium. But a couple days later, I'm sitting down with Chief Brown, and he tells me about a program that they've instituted within Salt Lake Police Department, because he realized that all these tensions, and let's be honest, they're tensions, they're struggles. You know, things are changing, communities are changing, as big as Salt Lake, as small as Harlingen. Uh, and he, thought, he realized that in order to help his community, his police force, uh, the people that he and his officer, officers took an oath to serve and protect, 
uh, in order to do their job, they needed to represent and better understand the refugee community. So I remember walking into the building and seeing a flyer recruiting refugees to join the department, not as sworn officers, but to be working the front desk, to be at, you know, become 911 operators. And to me, it was a, a really clear signal that you know, this department that is charged with public safety, you know, they were taking that dead serious. And they wanted to make sure that the people who were coming into that community were part of that mission as well. I just found it remarkable um, for a way that law enforcement was saying, you know what, we're going to figure this out. And that's a much more positive way to go about um, uh, building trust um, with immigrants in the community and local law enforcement agencies, much more constructive than what a lot of the advocacy groups have been doing, which is to say that, you know, if you go to law enforcement, you could be deported or, you know, and kind of stoking that fear. I think that's much more positive. And I might add in that, excuse me, add in that vein as well, uh, the Department of Homeland, Homeland Security has special people out there for, for public relations to work with people, but many of the people that I know don't access that help uh, because they, they, they've been told certain things that they shouldn't, but there is help with that, and so I've been grateful for uh, Homeland Security and their uh, community, community relations folks. Great. Uh, we're going to uh, start taking questions here in a few minutes. i got a couple more, so if you uh, do have questions, please uh, step up to the mic. Um, you know, as people are stepping up, I, I want to kind of ask the the whole panel, and I'd like to hear from each of you about, you know, we've, we've discussed kind of, you know, some things that we see good and bad with, with current policies and efforts, and, you know, in a perfect world, say, you could break up, you know, what we do now and start all over again, uh, you know, where would the perfect policy for you start from? Um, what, 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 what would be ideal for you and how, and how we address this? Uh, Mr. Narani, I'll start with you. Sure, so I think that the, you know, the two-year you know, dozens of uh, interviews and background checks and fingerprint checks, um, you know, we're vetting at a pretty extreme level at this point. Um, I do think that we need to look at our, our foreign policy, the way we are engaging other countries that are in these states of incredible turmoil and that are, you know, because of actions um, leading to the displacement of millions and millions of people. Um, so I think there's a balance between domestic policy and our security, our foreign policy and how we're engaging other countries. But at the end of the day, I think um, you know, the policy change is really local. Uh, and that policy change is you know, how cities and towns are engaging and, and grappling with these changes. And that's going to be different for every city and town. And I think that you know, it's law enforcement, it's mayors, city councilors, principals, superintendents. They're on the front lines of this. And you know, there are some really creative, innovative, uh, smart, uh, practices being put into place. Sheriff. Congress and the President set the refugee limit each year. So that number is, is uh, you know, that number is set. You know, I fall under a category of trying to balance public safety um, in the refugee world with the, with the, with the general public's protection. And I, I, I still always come back to the point that if we can serve more, if, we can, if we're more efficient, if we can benefit more refugees and sell them closer to their country of origin, then we'll be better off. Um, my dad worked for the New York City Police Department for 18 years as a civilian, he retired. 
Um, I work for the Department of Homeland Security, and I've probably been more vocal now than I ever have before, because in the, in the world of ISIS, uh, there's a difference between ISIS and Al-Qaeda is that Al-Qaeda wanted to recruit people to come fight where they were to try to put, push the West out of Muslim lands. ISIS's message is to kill where you are. And ISIS's message is that there's a, there's a divide between the Muslim world and uh, Christianity, that there is this you know, end-of-time battle that is, that is emerging. And so when we begin to do this Muslim ban, when we begin to say Muslims can't live in the West and coexist, we feed into that narrative. And it makes us less safe. So I'm not coming at it, like my colleague, from a faith tradition saying this is what we should do. I'm not coming at it from a national policy standpoint saying we're a nation of immigrants, that that's what we should do. I'm coming at it from a very specific security standpoint because radicalization happens when we begin to feed into ISIS's narrative. And if we are to make our country safe, we can't be the other side of ISIS and talk as if they are, just using different language. And that really is the core of why I'm more vocal today than I would have been years ago. Mm. That's good. <laughs> good job with ISIS. <laughs> Uh, and I, I agree. I, I totally agree with you, which also feeds into this whole idea of more and more interfaith dialogue and uh, how we really can hear and understand each other. Uh, and this is happening in many places here in the United States and around the world, but this interfaith dialogue that we all come, out at, come at it and understand each other in those ways. The other thing I wanted to mention, too, is several years ago, uh, uh, referencing to you, Sheriff, uh, Regarding in Syria and so forth, there were, there were these discussions about having safe zones so that people could stay where they were, be in these safe zones, and then be able to, when the, the trouble had ended, they would be able to go back home. Well, through all kinds of policy issues and whatever, those safe zones were never able to happen. And as a, as a result, then that increased the number of refugees uh, out of those countries and in those places. So I think those are some things that we need to, to uh, consider take a look at, um, and, um, uh, and then in the United States is this whole immigration reform that we need to take a look at what, it has not been reformed since uh, for 25 years or so, 30 years, I can't remember now, Ollie, how many years the last reform took, immigration reform, to, immigration changes took place, how many years? The one was 86. Yeah, and so. 96 too. Yeah, and, and so we, we really need to look at immigration reform dealing with the numbers that we have these days. Um, with respect to ISIS, I'm willing to take them at their word. They've said that they want to exploit refugee programs into Western nations as their attempt to form a caliphate is disintegrating. Um, they're sending their fighters back to some of the countries that they came from or to enter these countries as refugees. They've promised to do that. I'm willing to take them at their word and uh, believe that that's actually what they want to do. And, and um, recognize that we need to either have the screening system in place that is adequate or not accept refugees from those places. 
Um, but to look at the bigger picture, and frankly, that means that we simply cannot take folks from certain places if there, you know, there is no, if we have no assurances that it's okay to do so. Um, but from the, the bigger picture, I think we need to get back uh, to the idea of looking at um, resettlement in uh, another country as a last resort, take the lessons from the most successful repatriation effort of displaced persons and refugees um, that took place after the Vietnam War in Southeast Asia, when a lot of refugees were able to eventually return home, and look at that for lessons um, and solutions and, and try to apply those uh, in the situations that exist now in the world um, and, and integrate our foreign policy and development aid with that in mind and, and, and um, understand, and, and, and on the domestic side, reform our refugee resettlement program to make sure that um, the billions of dollars that are spent by taxpayers on this worthy initiative are done well and that the contractors who are doing this, whether they are faith-based contractors or others, um, have some accountability for the success of their efforts in um, helping refugees become self-sufficient and become Americans, because that's what we want out of all of our immigration programs. So, uh, and, and I think we're making good progress on that, um, you know, by having um, had the, the time and space with the travel ban to examine our vetting systems, which, by the way, do not take two, it doesn't take two years to vet somebody. That's just the waiting time, because our immigration agencies are so overloaded with applications that they sit in a pile for that long before the screening takes place. So, but we can do it, and I think we're making good progress on that. Okay, thank you all. Uh, so we have a, do have a few minutes for uh, questions. If I could, before you uh, go up to the microphone, just say, please, let's, let's make sure we stick to the queue in the Q&A. Let's uh, make sure we have questions and not statements. Um, but uh, uh, looks like we have a great line, so let's get started, please. Hi. Uh, I, so uh, in the next week or so, we'll get the presidential determination for refugees for 2018, and we've heard from several news sources that this number is going to be 50,000 or possibly fewer, which is historically unprecedented and half of what President Obama set for um, this last year. So I just was curious of your thoughts on that number. Um, if that is the number, what should be our next steps? What should we do if we can do anything now to influence that number? Um. Well, I'm obviously a lot older than you, so I can say that it's not historically unprecedented, <laughs> maybe in your lifetime, but not in mine. Um, in 2001 and around 9-11, uh, we took in maybe in the 20,000s in those years of refugees. And w originally, when um, the Refugee uh, Act was passed, it was envisioned that we would be accepting around 50,000 refugees per year. But also remember, um, there's the official U.S. RAP program, which is the one the State Department runs in the um, from overseas. But, for example, we accept... Last year, about 60,000 Cubans and Haitians here who are the equivalent of, of refugees and tens of thousands, in fact, it's hundreds <coughs> of thousands now of people that we have allowed into the country to pursue uh, claims of asylum. Um, so 
you know, and, and they're allowed to stay here for years and have a work permit while, you know, their asylum claim is adjudicated. So the number of people who are here for humanitarian reasons is much greater than the refugee program alone. You know, I, I would say on this, I mean, so our population as a nation is what, 350 million people? 327 million people. So there are a handful of folks in town. Um, to say, you know, we're gonna, we, we wanna go less than 50,000 refugees or more than 50,000 refugees <clears throat> is an important question. Um, the way that we look at this is that ultimately, what is gonna serve our national interest and send the right message to the world? And what is giving me inspiration right now is the fact that you have you know, Republican members of the House, Republican members of the Senate, you have you know, Southern Baptist pastors, you have Catholic leadership, Mormon leadership. I mean, these are folks who are you know, politically and socially conservative, who are saying, you know, we as a nation should be making sure that folks who are fleeing persecution uh, can get here and serve our national interest along the way. So I think that that 50,000 number is, uh, I don't think it serves our national interest from an economic perspective, from a moral perspective. Um, and I'm heartened to see that your Republicans and Democrats um, alike uh, have serious questions. We haven't talked much about person, uh, person seeking asylum, which is an unlimited number, refugees controlled by Congress and the President. But I think we also have to look and balance for sure that just the member nations, uh, the, the status of our, of, our, of our country now, I mean, we, we have a lot of new members in the nuclear club. Uh, there are uh, uh, a lot of things happening. Uh, you know, around, around the world. And so I see it as a pretty good balance right now. Let's maybe take a look back, step back. Um, asylees are unlimited. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Um, I'd like to address perhaps this to Mr. Narani, the sheriff, who's actually there on the ground seeing the reality of things. Um, Ms. Vaughn has made several statements just in this forum that, for example, suggesting the vetting program is not is not thorough enough, when I know that it's one of the most thorough processes in the world. Uh, the same group that she belongs to a few years ago in 2014 released a, a widely debunked study on 36,000 undocumented immigrants being released into the, just into the, into the environment. Widely debunked study, even the networks ignored it because of the holes. I'm wondering how challenging that kind of thing is when you're trying to promote a thoughtful discussion on these issues that affect so many people and uh, people who, who suffer, who are escaping violence, corrupt political corruption, and then to have these kind of comments, how challenging is that to counter that from a thoughtful perspective? Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're not accusing me of being thoughtful, so. Um, <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> right. uh, I mean, this is the way that we look at it at the National Immigration Forum, is that we think that the majority of Americans are living between two poles when it comes to this issue. One poll says, pulls people to, to to believe, rightfully so, that we are a nation of laws. We are a sovereign nation. We have a nation that has borders. There's another poll that pulls on people that says we're a compassionate nation and a welcoming nation. I think that that active debate and how people live on that spectrum um, is where we have to operate. I'm just gonna speak for our, ourselves and kind of our side of the, the question, if you will. I think we've made a mistake in that we believe that if a person is not welcoming, they're not with us. Um, I think that we have to approach this conversation to understand that you know, the immigration debate for the majority of Americans is not about politics, it's not about policy, 
at the end of the day, it's about culture and it's about values. Because when somebody's moving into a community from a different country, you know, that neighbor uh, who's been there for generations is asking, my culture gonna change? My values gonna change? Is my neighborhood gonna change? And we feel that you know, by working with faith, law enforcement, business leaders across the country, that we can help people through that conversation. Yes, I'm talking most of the misinformation that, that arises and that goes unchallenged largely, like we had today. The sheriff, I said, I'm sorry, I'm taking so much time. The sheriff, I suspect, can attest to the fact that these folks that are undocumented, statistically, they don't commit the crimes. Um, they're less prone to do that. And when you have misinformation like Ms. Vaughn has been spreading here today, it, I think it only uh, creates more of a fear and distrust and mistrust, if you will. I don't think it help, helps the, uh, the dialogue along. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Hi, I'll just keep it really, really quick. Two quick questions. First, I, I believe you mentioned that um, that you could save tw uh, help 12 times as many people with uh, international efforts as opposed to federal efforts. I was wondering, do we know the cost of that, of those international efforts compared with the federal efforts? And then the second question, really quick, um, one one uh, objection to President Trump's Muslim ban is that um, is that it unfairly targets Muslims, much like the Jewish registers um, from from Hitler's Germany. A lot of people bring that up as an example. How do you how do you balance the legitimate security threat of groups like ISIS with the uh, legitimate desire not to discriminate against people based on their religion? Well, on the on the cost figure. Um, we calculated the cost of resettling a refugee through our refugee resettlement program, which encompasses a number of different costs. Um, and the cost that um, the UN programs incur for helping each refugee in one of their assistance programs. And the UN cost is 12 times less per refugee than a resettlement cost to the United States. In the law enforcement world, we, uh, it's really hard for us to overlook the obvious. So your, the second part of your question had to do with, with the Muslim problem. So weekly, we, we read and look at the pictures from um, acid being thrown in the face of, of Western women mm -hmm. to uh, any of the other atrocities with machetes, knives, vehicles. Mm -hmm. Those are a Muslim problem. Mm -hmm. So let's don't overlook the obvious. My question is in regards to the asylum seekers. Um, as you said earlier, it's an unlimited number because, because of the situation that they're in. Um, in the past few years, whenever at the beginning of Trump's campaign, there was a significant drop in the asylum seekers coming up from the South American countries which were trying to seek asylum in the U.S. to get away from the violence and the corruption and the gang violence in countries or countries in Latin America and South America. Um, what can be done kind of to help reaffirm them that they are allowed to come here and it is a place of refuge for them? I think they know it, that, it's, that they can seek asylum here. It's a very different process, seeking asylum versus refugee. Well, still, 
there was a drop by about 10,000 people coming up every, every year. Even after, even in significantly in the past month, and this is according to the Diocese of McAllen, uh, there was a significant drop in the number of people who are coming up and coming through their resource center. Currently, according to ICE, those numbers are rising again now. So I don't know if they'll reach that they did in, in 2014. Yeah. But uh, the, possibly the change in administration. Um, one thing to dis keep in mind, though, is that um, it's important to distinguish between people who are um, fleeing persecution and people who understand that if they make it to our southern border and ask for asylum, they will be admitted for a certain period of time, even though they may not actually qualify for it. Well, yes. um, and so, uh, you know, we do know that there's a significant amount of fraud in the asylum program and that the smugglers who are paid to bring people here do coach them on what to say. And, you know, not every case is like that, but there, there is a significant amount of fraud in the program. And also, under international law, people seeking asylum are supposed to do it in the first safe country that they come to, um, which for many of these individuals would be Mexico. And Mexico has made it quite clear and, and has backed up on this promise that they will offer asylum to people coming from Central America. So... Asylum in the United States is not the only viable option for people who are fleeing the genuinely um, difficult conditions in some of those countries. Thank you. Shorty here. Um, so we've heard two different things regarding the vetting process. One, that it's very secure and it takes two years to get through, and then also that, you know, there are gaps in the process and then it's insecure and there's databases lacking information, it doesn't actually take two years. Um, these are in direct opposition to each other. So can, can you guys talk to us a little bit more about what that process actually looks like? And then if you're unable to verify someone's identity, what happens? Like how does this, because I think the vetting process itself is very opaque to the American public. We have no idea what actually happens in this whole thing. So, yeah, so um, yeah, there, there are a number of articles out there that you know, list out the multiple steps. So there are, you know, to oversimplify it and go very quickly, a person first applies for refugee status to the United Nations. There's a certain amount of time where they're vetted by the UN to see whether or not that application is legit. Then the person, in essence, is turned over. If they're assigned to be, you know, to apply for or seek refugee status with the US, they're turned over to the State Department and then to the Department of Homeland Security. Through that process, there are multiple biometric checks, there are multiple interviews, and in fact, if you're, Syrian, if you're a refugee from Syria, you're going through yet another layer. So the, the process has you know, well over a dozen steps. Um, it takes time because it just takes time. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, what we're working with here are states that are broken. And states that, you know, and, uh, people are fleeing these states for a very legitimate reason. So there is always going to be this tension of, of you know, where are you going to get inf your information and what does it look like? And that's why I think informants are incredibly important. Um, and when, you know, you talk to, uh, uh, you know, officials with state, with DHS, in order to prove somebody's application and, and prove that it's authentic, they're, you know, they're going through not just the database, but a circle of informants so that there is an understanding of who those individuals are. Um, I mean, the challenge here is that there is no perfect process. 
Let's just, let's be honest about that. Um, and, you know, that applies to everybody who, you know, who goes through any process. And ultimately, at the end of the day, for us as a nation, it's our constitution that makes these decisions. Um, so, you know, I think that a lot of the questions that were raised around the, the initial travel ban and the, you know, the very clear focus on Muslim countries, those have raised significant constitutional questions. And I think that any decision that, and any policy that this administration or any administration puts forward in the future have to be weighed against, you know, what our constitution has laid out. And that means that we as a nation cannot and should not be discriminating against a person based on their religion. Okay, so we're a little bit, thank you very much. We're a little bit past time, so let's wrap it up very quickly with the last two questions, but we'll have to leave here pretty soon, so please uh, be brief. Yeah, I'll, I'll be quick. Uh, I just wanted to note that I'm speaking in a private capacity here. Um, just uh, wanted to ask, our focus tends to be on vetting individuals, but the U.S. tends to not have much uh, to any, uh, the U.S. government has, uh, doesn't tend to be involved in the process once a refugee is present in the United States to provide assistance which seems separate and apart from most of the countries around the world. Uh, could you speak to how we're relying on the faith community to uh, provide assistance to refugees, whereas uh, we're not having the government provide support and assistance for those refugees, and wouldn't that be a more beneficial process? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the end of the question. Wouldn't, would that be a more beneficial process to have further government assistance in the actual support of refugees once they're physically present in the United States? As opposed to the faith As opposed community? to just relying on contracts or the faith-based community, but actually having like a, a, like a, a thorough system to uh, provide assistance for refugees well, I throughout think, the process. I think, I think the government and the faith community works in tandem, and ultimately the government can't carry this on forever. And so the faith community steps in and works many years. Most of it is uh, paid for by the U.S. government. I mean, almost all of it. And I think this discussion that we've had in the last couple of years um, has really challenged these resettlement contractors to find support from the private sector to, uh, to assist in this, whereas for a, a number of years there was no impetus to do that. And I think that's really a good thing because I think it has to be uh, a public-private initiative. Yes. And when I say the faith community, I'm not talking about the faith uh, resettlement programs. I'm talking about your church, my church, uh, my mosque, my synagogue, just but regular folks that are out there. That's who I'm talking about. Just in the context of security screening, though, I guess when people are physically present in the United States, rather than not having a process to that we're, we're concerned about the security oh. of the United States, uh, should we not have a, a more robust so if process? A, if, if a person comes as a refugee and they want to adjust their status to uh, legal permanent residence and then go through naturalization process, there are multiple security checks in that process. Mm -hmm. So as people are coming, they want to, over time, apply for citizenship. There's another round of, of criminal checks. Good afternoon, and thank all of you so much uh, for being with us. Um, I have a question that slightly uh, changes the subject, but um, it's still about refugees. And that is, as you know, the definition of a refugee came out of World War II. Well-founded fear based on persecution, race, religion, ethnicity, membership in a social group, political opinion. We have been witnessing some of the most devastating natural disasters. You know, you can't go home and watch TV without... There's a, a, an emerging movement to add peoples 
whose homes, their nations, or their regions have been destroyed by natural disasters to the definition of a refugee because they are also displaced people that don't have a home they can go back to. I would just like you to briefly, since time is precious, are you even open to the possibility of amending the refugee definition in law to encompass that type of circumstance? Not everyone answer at once. <laughs> I'm not a member of Congress. I'm not. It's me off the hook. <laughs> um, I think that we're having a tough enough time with the enormous population of people displaced by the uh, grounds that you mentioned. Um, again, I think disaster re uh, assistance is something that we should be doing and actually are doing quite effectively in places like Iraq um, in recent years. I think that's definitely something that we should have in our assistance budget and pursue aggressively so that people don't become then dis displaced. But again, that's an opportunity for, for temporary safe haven and repatriation. I would say just in close, uh, there's a program called Temporary Protected Status. Yeah. Uh, and there are a number of uh, countries that are actually up for renewal in the next six months, including Haiti, El Salvador, uh, South Sudan, and others. Mm -hmm. And that is a, a protection granted to individuals who you know, are here and their nations have been uh, ravaged by uh, political, or I'm sorry, environmental or, or even political um, catastrophe, if you will. Um, so that's the, I think that's the closest uh, we have right now, and I think that you know, we're focused really on how do we ensure that, number one, those countries are able to rebuild, uh, but number two, the folks that are here and have tempor tempor temporary protected status um, are able to continue to thrive and contribute. Uh, please join me in thanking this panel for appreciate the discussion. You guys did a wonderful job. Thank you so much, and thank you for your participation. <laughs>